Hello, this is episode 15, and my guest today is Dr. Brett Watson. He is a postdoctoral fellow with the Institute of Social and Economic Research, and he is focused on fisheries economics. Brett received his PhD in mineral and energy economics from Colorado School of Mines, and our focus today is going to be a paper Brett co-authored with fellow faculty titled Local Economic Multipliers of Commercial Fisheries. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is your host, Casey DeShock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Brett, welcome to the show. I'm glad that you're taking a little bit of time out of your day to talk some fisheries with me. Oh, thanks for having me, Casey, and th- thank you for the introduction. Yeah, and um, one disclaimer, uh, you, you are working with studying under in ICER, however you want to, to uh, describe that. I think that the university puts out a lot of great information. Some people love the university, some people don't love the university, but I myself am disappointed a little bit that uh, Alaska doesn't have a graduate program in economics because we have a very unique region and we've got a lot of great minds thinking about how Alaska can deal with things. And when we're at $20 a barrel oil, kind of important to have some people thinking about these things. Well, I I share your disappointment in in that, Casey. Um, And, and hopefully that's something that, uh, you know, looking forward, the university can, can think more carefully about, because I think that you're right that, you know, the state faces a lot of challenges. And I think the more people that we have thinking about ways to address those challenges in smart and interesting ways, the better. And, and a good way to do that is to have a well-trained and educated workforce. And a great way to do that is graduate education and economics. So I, I appreciate you raising that issue from the outset. It'd be absolutely wonderful to have one of those based here in Anchorage. So, uh, you know, Alaskans usually think that we are really, really special and I moved up. I moved up here, you know, a, a while ago. You you moved up here. Like I said, you were studying in in Colorado. So, just a couple of questions, not trivia, but about Alaska. Before you got up here, had you ever heard of the Trans Alaska Pipeline? Uh, yes. Okay. Had you ever heard of or studied heard about the opportunities for a? Uh, LNG pipeline up here. No, no, I hadn't. And I, I, you know, that's one of the things that is, uh, it is something that everybody thinks that may be coming down the pipeline, but the more and more I read, there's LNG projects all over the world and, and we rarely get uh, mentioned. Had you ever heard of our dividend? Yes, I had. Okay. I think maybe, maybe the first reference to the dividend was in the Simpsons movie. I remember the the Simpsons moved into Alaska and then they got the they got handed the toil check and so <laughs> for some reason it left an impression on on me when I was in high school or whenever whenever I saw that movie but uh, yeah so that was that was my first introduction to the dividend well good. well good so um, today we're going to talk about the it's not necessarily the economics of the individual fishermen that's not what the paper was about so. The paper, Local Economic Multipliers of Commercial Fisheries, I enjoyed reading it. You had sent it to me, and I found some of the, some of the results surprising. Um, and we'll, we'll probably link to it if that's possible, or I'll send people to it. But um, even though the paper isn't insanely technical, it's really not for mass consumption. It really is an academic, economic look at how commercial fisheries impact local communities. And so we'll be talking about, there's going to be a few important topics, but just to uh, lay some groundwork, multiplier and leakage are mentioned a lot in the paper. So you want to walk through what, uh, what is meant by a multiplier and leakage when we're looking at it, economics? Yeah, so um, 
so it's, I think a good way to think about a multiplier effect is, is basically like if you threw a rock into a pond, that rock would create a splash, and then that splash would start to ripple out across the water of the pond. And what we, well, one of the things that we might care about in thinking about that action of the rock hitting the water and then the associated ripples is how many ripples were created with that rock hitting the water and how far did they go, how high were the waves, so how much, how much disturbance was there in the water. So when you think about multipliers in this, this economic context, we're kind of interested in, you know, how big a rock do you need to throw into that pond? How much economic activity do you need to dump into a place to generate significant ripple effect or spillover activity? And so when we talk about a multiplier effect, generally speaking, in the, in the economic context, we're really talking about the, the ratio or the relative size of how many ripples were created relative to the size of the rock that you threw. So if it takes a relatively small rock, to create a large amount of activity on the surface of an economy. Um, we say that whatever activity generated that, multi- or that activity had a big multiplier effect. Whereas if you throw a big rock into an economy and it doesn't do very much, then it might have a small multiplier effect. So, so when we say multiplier, that's, that, that's kind of the basic idea that we're thinking about. Now, and then when you're talking about leakage, you're meaning... Yeah, so the the story of leakage is one of the ways that a big rock can generate a small ripple effect through an economy is if there's opportunity for that money to leak out of, of that economy. So there are lots of places when money changes hands that it can leave a, a city or a state. And in Alaska, that, that idea is really important. So, for example, we have a lot of economic activity that goes on in the state. Um, that's performed by uh, non-resident workers or non-resident companies. And so whenever a, let's take a company that's based in Alaska, for instance. So if they hire a non-Alaska resident to come work on the slope or as crew labor out in the fishery, um, you know, those wages are going to leak out really fast. They're going to go back to their home state, maybe in Washington, maybe in Texas. Um, and they're going to go spend that money there. So it doesn't have an opportunity to generate multiplier effects in the economy up here. Um, if you're talking about a non-Alaska company that's operating, um, you know, one of the many major oil companies that operates up here, um, a lot of the, the profits are owned by shareholders that don't live in the state of Alaska. And so that money leaks out of the state. Um, but you also have leakage that happens in other ways, too. So you know, a lot of the food that we buy in the stores, at least here in Anchorage, um, is grown out of the state. Um, a lot of the drinks that we buy are produced by uh, folks from outside. You know, the consumer items that we buy, the phones, the cars, all those things, those are all produced from outside the state. Um, in the fisheries context, you know, boats, uh, those are produced from outside. Diesel fuel, that's all refined outside. So there's just a lot of opportunities for money to leave you know, the, the economy of the state of Alaska. Um, and that really, um, that really cuts back on the potential multiplier effects that we're able to experience from the, the really rich natural resource wealth that we have here to, to utilize. When we're looking at commercial fisheries, now there are a, a lot of different commercial fisheries and, and we're going to talk about the different areas and maybe how they differ from each other. But um, yep. when we're looking at the multiplier, one of those, one of the ideas that somebody may think about is if you have, if you have a resident or a non-resident, as uh, as you were saying, um, a resident's going to get the money and then he he may go and spend it at the grocery store or he may spend it um, at a local hardware store. Somebody that's a non-resident comes in, gets all of the money, takes it to whichever state that they lived in. So that's basically what what you're alluding to. How um how does the the Alaska fisheries or just commercial fishing in general in Alaska, the multiplier on, on whole compared to other industries in the state, such as oil or tourism, timber, or any other industry that you might know, maybe you don't have that number. Yeah. So there are, I mean, people talk about maybe um, three or four pretty large uh, uh, industrial sectors in the state. So there's, uh, and uh, kind of revenue generators. So that's, that's kind of the three big ticket items or, that people talk about are tourism, uh, the fishing industry, and oil and gas. 
Um, and so the multiplier effect that people uh, have, or that, that we estimate for the fishing industry is 1.54. So let's put some context in that number. What, is, what does that number mean? So um, when, we, when we say that uh, the fishing industry has a multiplier of 1.54, we mean that for every dollar that a fisherman is generating in an Alaska fishery, a, a resident Alaska fisherman, um, that dollar is going to go on to generate another 54 cents in the community that that fisherman lives in. Um, and so there's a multiplier effect of a dollar 54 for every dollar that, that's generated. So how does that compare to some, uh, some of the other industries in the state of Alaska? So um, tourism has a multiplier. And so these, these numbers are all going to come from uh, the McDowell group. Um, uh we, I personally have not estimated these multiplier effects, and there's some caveats to try to compare them to one another. But you know, generally speaking, you know, kind of ballpark estimates. Um, tourism has an estimate or an estimated multiplier effect of about one and a half as well. Uh, oil is a little bit higher than that because the the, the final product is so high value. So uh, McDowell's estimated multiplier effects of between two to three to four, even as high as four in the oil and gas sector. So. Um, the fishing industry kind of sits comfortably in the maybe in the middle of that range, or maybe even toward the lower side. And there's, a, do you know what the what the variation is between the different fisheries? So maybe out in the Aleutians, if you're talking groundfish versus the Bristol Bay fishery versus down in southeast, or do do we put all of these fisheries together when we look at the numbers? So so you tend to, or in our analysis, we do a little bit of both. So. Um, so we put together one set of numbers and the, the one and a half that I quoted just a second ago, that's an average across all the fisheries of the state. Now that average is kind of heavily weighted toward the most valuable fisheries of the state, which are Bristol Bay salmon, um, Prince William Sound salmon, some salmon in the Southeast, and then the large halibut fishery, state halibut fishery. Um, and so that, that, that's most of the, most of the fishing activity kind of falls into those, uh, those fairly key fisheries. Um, and then we do we do try to look regionally at these these different effects. Now, um, there's a different share of in-state versus out-of-state participants that are kind of uh, participating in, in these different fisheries. So, um, it tends to be the case that the lower value fisheries. So, here thinking about um, salmon fisheries up in um, up in the Yukon area, Kotzebue. Um, those tend to be fairly low value. Um, the pink salmon fisheries, for example, uh, tend to be lower value. Those have more in-state participants, whereas a lot of the um, the high-dollar fisheries, your, it, your example of the Aleutians is probably more apt in that case, high-dollar fishery. Uh, Bristol Bay salmon, maybe to some extent, too. Uh, those, those have a higher share of out-of-state participants. And so one of, the, one of the numbers that we look at in the paper is that Alaskans represent about 77% of all of the fishers that are engaged in fishing in the state of Alaska. So 70% or 77% of the, the fishers are Alaska residents that participate in Alaska fisheries. But only about 33% of the revenue are then go to those Alaska-based fishers. Um, and so that, that discrepancy is pretty, pretty eye-opening. And that's largely driven by the fact that um, a lot of the, the highest value fisheries are um, mostly owned by those out-of-state participants that are operating uh, those large Kessler processor vessels out in the Bering and Aleutian. The seventy-seven percent number. I think a lot of people, when they're when they think about the fishery, because the more valuable fisheries are the ones that get, that uh, come to the forefront of all of our minds, we tend to think that um, the commercial fishery is much more heavily dominated by out-of-state workers when. When you look at that 77% number, is that um, permit holders, do you know, or is that uh, permit holders and crew members and processors or just processors or the, that 77% number? Yeah, so our, our, um, our analysis is primarily based on programs um, in the limited entry program or one of the limited entry programs that are managed by the, um, the Commercial Entry Fisheries Commission uh, the state, by the state of Alaska. Um, and so these are, these are just, uh, when I say 77%, it's people that are registered with the state of Alaska through CFEC. Um, and so 77% of people who participated 
um, in uh, one of the fisheries in 2016. Uh, of, of those people, uh, 77% of them were Alaska residents, 33% of them were from out of state. And then the, but the out of state workers are the ones that are really, really taking uh, the lion's share of the actual X vessel value, if you will. They, I mean, and it's not necessarily because for any other reason than they just seem to be in the higher value fisheries and therefore they make more money off of that. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and so that, that's on the fishing side. If you look upstream, the, the picture gets a little more extreme too. So if you look at who owns processors in the state of Alaska, um, most of the process, shoreside processors or catcher vessels, those are owned by mostly companies out of Washington state. Um, very, very few processors owned, you could say domestically or uh, by Alaska residents. And so you know, kind of as you look up the value chain of, of fishing, uh, it's kind of a funnel shape that that as you get higher and higher up the value chain, more and more of it becomes owned by out-of-state residents. When somebody listening is, is thinking about this, if you're not familiar with the Bristol Bay fishery, just something I want, want you to keep in the back of your mind as, as we're going through through these numbers and these examples is you have a permit holder and perhaps he, he's a out-of-state resident. He has a, a boat in which he might, might have bought in Seattle. He's got to get his gear. He's got to get his food. He's got to get his crew members. So he has the option to uh, hire crew members locally, or he can hire somebody from out of state, etc. So the fisheries are also going to create jobs, which can impact the multiplier, depending on what they're doing, or leakage. And some of, in the paper, you talk about, direct, indirect, and induced jobs. So when we're looking at the fisheries, when you talk those three terms, how do those three terms relate to employment? Or what are examples of those? Yeah, so that's a great question. So so thinking back to that example of throwing the rock in the pond. So the direct effect is is the splash as the rock hit. So that's, that's, when we think about direct effects in the paper, we're thinking about the X vessel value that a skipper or a captain is getting uh, when they're selling to their processor. Uh, so that's money that's going into their pocket. And so then they're going to turn around um, and they're going to do a few things with that money. Uh, the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to pay their crew. Um, and so that uh, the wages that they're paying their crew or the uh, shares, however, however the, the skipper or the captain sets up, sets up their arrangement, um, those wages are what we call indirect effects. And so we can kind of think of those as the next little waves or the bigger waves that are getting generated when that rock is going into the pond. The captain might also need to, like you said, um, uh, get maintenance for his vessel or purchase diesel or maybe get ice, you know, all these, all these inputs that they need to go out on a trip. Um, The payments that they're making for all of those items, those are more money in people's pockets. And so we can think of those as additional indirect effects. So every time that the, the captain or the skipper is making payments um, in order to go out and in order to go fish, these are all indirect effects of, of that economic activity, that rock hitting the water. But the money, the, the effect doesn't really end there, right? So the, the ripple effects continue to be generated because what are those crew members going to do? Well, you know, they might have to pay... Uh, pay rent at a bunkhouse or something in the Bristol Bay, you've got these kind of man camp set up. So, you know, sometimes companies are paying to put people up in one of those bunkhouses, but you know, they might stay at a hotel in Dillingham or something and uh, they might frequent the local bar. And um, I, I don't know what other fun recreational activities there are in Dillingham, but you, you know, it. you can imagine, <laughs> uh, you can imagine some captains and crew, uh, you know, going out and participating in some of that. And so, all of these are kind of those those further ripple effects as they kind of head out, um, and you know you're you're tipping waitresses at the, the the bar, and you know that's money in their pocket. So all of, all of those effects are, are what we call induced effects, and so you've got these direct effects, the rock hitting the water, um, and then that ripples out into these indirect effects. That's the money that's going to the the crew and the other types of payments that the captains need to make in order to keep the business going. And then when they turn around and they go spend money in the community, that's what we call these induced effects, the furthest ripples out. And so as we we're talking about leakage earlier, 
every time um, you make a payment, uh, a captain makes a payment to somebody that doesn't live in the community or that doesn't spend any money in the community, that money is getting leaked out. And so it doesn't have the opportunity to generate those additional ripple effects, those additional multiplier effects. So if we really want to think about economic development, there are lots of different places in that value chain that we could think about trying to target. Um, but, but I think that that's kind of the, the basic rundown of these indirect or these direct, indirect, and induced effects. When we're talking about permit holders, then has did the paper look at or in any of your work have you seen where if we move or promote a higher percentage of resident permit holders that that has a greater impact on fisheries or if we compare different fisheries across the state the ones that are more resident have more percentage of residents that are the permit holders does that benefit the local economy greater than if it's primarily non-residents yeah so if we kind of dive into the guts of the paper now so so what the, the matching exercise that we do from the fishery to a particular local economy, you know that, that matching exercise is somewhat, or is, is 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 complicated somewhat by the fact that you know even even for local fishermen in Alaska, they might might participate in lots of different fisheries. So, particularly folks that are living in places like Homer and Sitka, you know they might be fishing you know Bristol Bay and then coming back to fish halibut. Um, and so there's there's a potentially you know multiple fisheries that they're participating in. But all of that revenue is coming back to Homer or Sitka. Um, and so what we do in the paper is we, we try to think about two different, uh, two different channels that money might enter into a community. So that first channel is the fisher bringing money home. So we look at, uh, we match the fishermen to all the fisheries that they're participating in and add up all the money that they're making in all of them. And we say, okay, so what happens to a community's economy when that fisherman brings that money home? And that's the and, and that's where we find that for every dollar of money that a fisherman earns in every one of those fisheries he participates in, the local economy for that fisherman where they reside benefits about fifty four cents for every dollar that they're bringing in, an additional fifty four cents in addition to the dollar that they're bringing. And um, one second, yeah. when we when we uh, when we're talking about uh, right now, you have you have to look at our information is only as good as the the data that we can really gather. So. It, it seems kind of voodoo science that we would be able to look and say, well, the fishers are catching this. When when you're looking at the way that you would possibly study this, I think the way that you would do it is is you would set some sort of a baseline and say, okay, if the if the price or the the X vessel value increases by fifty percent, how does that impact it? If it decreases by fifty percent, you can't just go year by year. How would you come across those numbers? Is it by the variation in the catches between year? Yeah, so so we 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 use the variation both the X vessel prices and the uh, and in the the run size basically uh, the quantity of fish that are getting caught. Um, so it's like the gross X vessel value that's being generated. So it's the price and the quantity of the fish. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so both both of those, you know, are generating revenue. For both of those, have a lot of variation in them, um, and both of those are being driven by glo- mostly global variation. And what I mean by that is that uh, first, uh, you know, prices for a lot of uh, seafood commodities are generated on a global scale. So, you know, largely generated by demand from uh, the Asian market uh, and markets in the lower forty-eight. And those, and sometimes depend on the U.S. exchange rate uh, with the, you know, the the Chinese currency or the Japanese currency. Um, so fish prices are kind of set globally, um, and then uh, the quantity is also kind of outside the fishermen's control too. I mean, you know, the, the fishermen are going to go out and they're going to try to catch as much as they can catch, um, but the regulator kind of comes in and is, is trying to pump the brakes every now and then to make sure that they meet escapement goals or any other type of biologic limits they might face. Um, so yeah, we, 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 look at how much revenue each of these fisheries is generating and we match that revenue back to where the fishermen are coming from, uh, using their registration, uh, in the CFEC database. So that's how we do that matching process. So that's one potential channel that we think that revenue can enter into a community. It's it's how much money the fishermen are earning. Uh, But there's another important channel too. Um, so we talked before about all of these, uh, these shoreside processors that are located 
uh, you know, nearby the fishery. Um, but they, they're close to these communities too. So, um, I, I don't, what, are there, um, large, uh, large processors that are locating in Dalingham? I mean, I know that there's some in Agagic and Naknek. Um, but I mean, are there some that are kind of closer to Dillingham proper? Yeah, in, in Dillingham, we have in downtown Dillingham, located right right next to all of the Commerce Center. You have the Peter Pan Cannery. Uh, that's a dock. It's a large processing facility, and then Outwood River, kind of separated from really downtown Dillingham, you would have um, Icicle Seafoods. Ah, gotcha. Okay, perfect. So, so yeah, so there's there really these two different channels that we might think that the money could kind of come into Dillingham, right? There could be Dillingham-based fishermen that are bringing their money home, but there's also fishermen that are either Dillingham-based or Anchorage-based or Seattle-based that are selling into those processors in Dillingham, and that can generate economic activity too. And so in the paper, what we do is we try to separately measure the economic impact for uh, what happens when the fisherman brings money home versus what happens when uh, fishermen sell in to the processors that are located in these communities. And so this gets a little bit at this in-state versus out-of-state question, not, not perfectly, but kind of approximates it. And what we find is that the fishermen bringing their money home is just a much more important channel for generating these multiplier effects. Um, these processors, like I mentioned, just have a lot more leakage associated with them. And so, um, so we actually estimate a statistically insignificant effect of landings on the local economy. So it doesn't really matter. So we, to say that in a different way, um, you know, we, we can't statistically find uh, any relationship between how much value is being generated by local processors and the, the performance of the economies that those processors are located in. Now, that, that's primarily because the processors are so much of the money is leaking. It, that's, that's not to say that if Peter Pan and Icicle were suddenly owned by local residents that that wouldn't generate a lot of money. It's just that the processors have such a high rate of leakage, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, and it's not that um, Icicle or Peter Pan aren't important parts of the, the community or the, the economy in Dillingham. It's just that we don't observe an effect, a statistical effect of having those processors there kind of on a year-to-year basis. So every, everything that we're looking at is kind of based on year-to-year fluctuations. You know, how much does run size from last year impact the local economy this year? Um, and so, so, yeah, we're not estimating the effect of what happens if the fishery goes away or processor goes away. Um, but we, we are estimating kind of these annual fluctuations in the value of the fishery and how those relate to both having a process or having a local fishermen. And we, we find that that local fisherman effect is, is, is in, in all likelihood, much larger than that, than that processor effect. We'll talk a little bit about uh, COVID and the, the situation, you know, the, this, what we're going through right now. But it just made me think of an interesting point. Some people may be concerned right now that some of these processors, in order to participate in the fishery this year, are considering moving their processing offshore. Uh, mm. There may be some concern. This would be a, a neat natural experiment to see what happens because if they move offshore, then they're moving out of the community. They're not going to change right now. They may, but they're not going to change the composition of their workforce. It's just that they're simply not going to be in the communities potentially this year. That would be an interesting way to look at it. Um, or Yeah, it, it would. That, that's not something that I had heard about them doing yet, but, but uh, well, certainly something to look out for because I think you could definitely do something along the lines that you suggest, yeah. And so some, you know, based on the paper and your findings, some people may be concerned, oh, my goodness, that this is going to have this giant impact on the economy and hurt the economy, that perhaps that, that not it, necess- it won't necessarily have the, that uh, great cratering effect on the economy or at least maybe it shouldn't which is i I mean it's i think i think that that's one implication from from the findings of you know based on you know all the caveats that i laid out previously you know obviously there's there's no silver bullet here or perfect thing that you can do whenever you're doing these modeling exercises yeah i I think that um I, i think that that is that is a takeaway that you could make from from the paper is that is that yeah that offshoring of the processing activity may not may not have as detrimental an impact as, as the potential um, for uh, 
oh, migration of permits away from the community, for example. Now, the migration of permits away from the community, does the, does the paper make any sort of uh, conclusion claims about whether or not if a fishery moves more towards uh, residents having the permits as compared to non-residents, that that has a, an immediate impact? Or that the percentage, you know, if we were to say that Dillingham had 50 and 50, 50% resident, 50% non-resident, that's not what it's made up of right now, but just as a thought experiment, if it were to tilt 75, 25, either which direction, the difference that that would make, or does the paper not have any conclusions on that? Yeah, I, I think that I think that that's another another way to interpret that finding is that you know uh, that if 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 it's really the residents bringing their money home that it's generating these multiplier effects, and not necessarily at least in terms of the the earnings that are made by the the local residents of the community. And I really want to emphasize that, right? Because it's not. Um, you know, it's not that there's not economic activity being generated. It's just going to Anchorage or Seattle. Um, and, it, and you know, we, we don't try to place a ton of value judgments on that at the paper. Our job is to, to kind of report the, the evidence that we're finding. Um, but, it, you know, the, it, it certainly looks like um, that the additional revenue that, that's created um, is, is mostly being generated by resident fishermen in their community. This may be a hard thing to, to pull out a, a line directly from the paper, but something that stuck out to me was there's a quote that I might, I may be misunderstanding, but it says there's also some evidence of smaller direct effects of resident catch and local landings on crew licenses in more fishing dependent communities, which suggests that any multiplier effects in these communities are likely not being driven by increased crew opportunities for residents. Before you answer that, the uh, a couple of things that we may, or what what I draw from that is that perhaps or first let's just talk about what did the paper talk about uh, fishery dependent communities? Yeah, so so first of all, I mean, there's there's obviously lots of different ways you can measure fishery dependence, right? Um, it's it's very hard for us to to say anything about cultural dependence. I mean, although there are some sociologists that try to measure cultural dependence. Um, and so we took a, what I will call overly simplistic um, or simple um, and perhaps overly simplistic view of fishery dependence, which, and we, we measured it like this. We, we said, okay, how much of the total formal sector economy, so how much, how much of the economy that we can actually measure uh, comes from uh a fisherman earning wages or fisherman earning excessive value in that community. So, you know, what, what percentage of fisherman revenue uh, makes up the total, total formal economy in a place. And so that, that was our definition of fishery dependence. Um, and then we, we tried to look at how, how these multiplier effects varied um, from community to community based on, based on how dependent that fishery community was. Um, and so, so you might have the hypothesis that in the more fishery-dependent communities, uh, the multiplier effect could be bigger, um, which I think certainly makes sense. And we found some evidence uh, that was potentially consistent with that. Uh, one of the pieces of evidence that you mentioned was this effect of uh, crew hire. So we can differentiate um, in our data between uh, resident and non-resident crew, so people that are coming up from outside or you know, from Anchorage or something and um, going, uh, going out to Dillingham or something uh, to, to fish. Um, and yeah, so, so we, we found that the result that you described, which is that um, in the, these more dependent places, uh, that ratio of uh, dependent or sorry, uh, resident to non-resident crew was changing. The, the more is almost my, in my understanding of it, which makes sense when you look at, where the money is going when you look at fishermen, resident, non-resident, the more valuable fisheries going uh, more proportionally to non-residents that as a val as a fishery increases in value, it tends to attract, uh, number one, it attracts more out-of-state workers. And so it's easier for a, for a captain to find workers out-of-state and bring in crew. So as that price goes up, there's more competition for the, a limited amount of crew spots. And so as the value goes up, 
fewer and fewer local crew members are fishing. Yep, that's right. Which is, which is a, uh, which is a unique. A lot of times we may think that it would attract more local residents into that fishery, but you really have to think of it as if only 10,000 people in the lower 48 would be possibly willing to fish, when the price goes from 50 cents to $2 a pound, it increases the potential workforce in the lower 48 to maybe a quarter million people now want to fish. And so there's more competition for those spots. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the the other the other thing that's worth mentioning here too is that is that because we're thinking about kind of year over year changes, um, that in communities that are very dependent on their fisheries, you know, a a large change in the value of those fisheries may not change their behavior a lot. So, so for example, if if a community is kind of all in on its fishery. And that community or and that fishery experience is a pretty sharp decline in its value. I mean that that community may just not be set up to um, to move into some other uh, industry that it's diversified into because it's so you know all of its chips are on the fishery, right? And so so we may not find huge multiplier effects in very fishery dependent communities, uh, and we find you know partial evidence of this in in, in some of the some of the models that we run um, because because of that fact because they're so uh, so singularly invested in fishing activity that there's not a lot of other industries for uh, for that revenue that fishing revenue to go generate additional multiplier effects in, um, and so f- very fishing dependent communities can experience a lot of leakage for that reason. What we're what we're getting ready to face. This is something when I did episode three, uh, Craig Medred and I talked about this a little bit, and that was the changing of the market, and this is changing. It's not changing topics, but we're stepping out a little bit broader here. Yeah, great. What would so right now? What do you know? What are primarily what our supply chain looks like for some of the fishery? I mean, is most of our stuff processed in Alaska? Is it processed in China, Washington? Do you have an idea on the supply chain, or is that something that you guys haven't looked at? I, I, so I, I have a, some impression. So I know that um, so a lot of the the ground the um, Bering Sea Aleutian Island groundfish, um, a lot of that is pre-processed on the vessel, and then they it's sent to China for additional processing and, and really product packaging, uh, and then sent to the United States. Um, I think for salmon, you know, there's, there's, there's a decent amount of processing that happens in-state, some of it in Washington, some of it in China. So I think it depends on the fishery a little bit. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if most of the value of processing happened outside the state of Alaska. And when that, when that value goes outside of the, it goes outside of the state, that's just a benefit that we're, we're, we're just going to lose out on that. There's no real way for us to ever capture that the value added is happening outside of the state. And it is very unlikely that we're going to be bringing that here anytime soon. That's just something that we're losing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've seen some attempts to try, and, and this is coming, and I think, you know, the, the conversation that you had in episode three was really interesting. I enjoyed listening to it. You know, as, as Alaska has tried to think about its marketing strategy for its seafood, you know, one of the things that I've seen a few fishermen do is try to try to get into specialty product um, in, in their marketing approach. And so there are some, uh, you know, some, fo- some buyers in the lower 48 that are really interested in Alaska seafood products and really like the idea of, of kind of vertically integrated um, and locally sourced supply chain. So I think I've seen a few, um, a few fishermen in Bristol Bay that, you know, or, or, or um, you know, building uh, small smoking facilities and smoking their own fish and then, you know, selling a fairly high value added product. Um, but it doesn't, I don't think I've seen anything to suggest to me that, you know, this is really happening at scale yet. This is kind of individual fishermen operating fairly small scale operations. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I I can look at it out here. There are some people that are doing it, but, you know, you don't have the capacity to do it on a major, major scale. There are there are some attempts to, to um, maybe go into a more cooperative type of format or bring bring together more and more fishermen to process. But, you know, that's that that's out there. We'll see what happens. One of one of my worries is 
we're moving into a year where there is starting to be some talk about potentially maybe some of our fisheries don't actually open. Maybe we take the year off. Um, we're going to have to see what happens. What I wanted to ask you about is the downfall of taking a year off. What do you think about uh, if we were to say, okay, the Bristol Bay sockeye fishery, we're not going to open this year. It's too much of a risk to bring in that processing capacity, or we're going to do it at a very, very reduced rate. Um, what does it look like when we start to give up market share? Uh, if we give up market share, and you can think about this in oil, etc., you give up market share, it's very hard to get that market share back, or, or is that pretty liquid in the theory of economics? Well, so, you know, first of all, caveat, 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 that we've never we've never really experienced a global pandemic on this scale that is affecting so many different industries. And so I, I think that you're absolutely right to think about giving up potential market share as maybe the, you know, the lever that's the most important here. But, you know, on the other side of the world, you know, the, the Norwegian farm salmon, uh, the, the farm salmon folks are asking some of the same questions about whether or not they need to scale back production to protect themselves. And so, you know, if there's this give and take operation, it's not not necessarily clear to me that, you know, if, if Alaska scaled back all the way and the Norwegians scaled back quite a bit and the Chilean farm scaled back quite a bit, you know, who ends up, you know, the worst off in that situation? Um, and so, so that's, that's kind of one piece. Um, it, it is absolutely the market share piece, but it's not, not totally clear to me that, that Alaska necessarily has to be the loser um, just because this is affecting everybody right now. Um, the other, the other couple of things that I would think about um, in the context of coronavirus and, and kind of the future is on the supply side, if the fishery shuts down, um, there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies, right? Um, you know, small businesses are going to be really hit hard. Uh, you know, the, the state government, the federal government, maybe some local governments are trying to put together release packages. But, you know, these things are obviously uh, you know, very fast moving situations. And so a lot of businesses might fall through these cracks of these packages that, you know, are intended to do good things for, for folks, but you know, you can't, you can't have really one size fits all programs. Um, and so, you know, we, if the fishery shuts down, folks might go out of business. Uh, and usually what comes in the wake of that is consolidation. Um, and so you might see uh, further consolidation on the processor side. Um, because of the structure of the limited entry program, it's hard to, it, it, you can't really see consolidation on the, uh, the fisherman side, right? That's, a, that's, um, what, I was, that's what I was going to uh, allude to next was that what you would normally see would be some of the, the, least, the least efficient uh, fishermen going out of business and then and people snatching up those permits, the, the ones that could weather the storm, and then the entire fishery maybe becoming more efficient um but because we have the limited entry system we're not going to see those i mean permits could lose value but we're not really going to see any stacking of permits etc and particularly in the bristol bay fishery you may see the changing of hands though that's that's something oh that's yeah something absolutely saying. yeah yeah. And then and then the last thing I, I might say about about this situation or the coronavirus situation kind of long term is that and I, I'm not sure that I have a, a ton of confidence that this will or won't happen, um, but I think it's kind of worth putting out in the the, uh, the universe here as an idea is that there might be increased focus on um, the domestication of our supply chains. And so one of, one of the things that I think the United States is reeling from right now is the fact that we just don't have capacity to produce a lot of our own stuff. Like in, in the medical context for fighting coronavirus, people are really concerned about not having production to produce surgical masks um, or ventilators, respirators, those types of things. Uh, but I think that there might, I mean, that, that kind of thinking might extend to other supply chains, like our, um, our supply chains for medicine, most of which are based out of China, and our supply chains for food. Um, you know, a lot of our food comes from outside. And even the, the food that we catch here in Alaska gets shipped to China for processing before it gets sent back. Um, and so, you know, if, if one of the things that comes out of this is, you know, thinking about how the United States can be more resilient to these types of, of negative, you know, global shocks, 
uh, one of one of those things might be, you know, kind of a focus, a refocusing inward on on what we can grow, what we can catch, uh, what we can mine domestically. Um, and 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 so you know that that might be a a, a long term tailwind for uh, for Alaska uh, seafood. So. And one of the one of the potential problems with that would be you would maybe assume that the if the processors are are going to domesticate some of the the supply chain that the the overhead costs would increase and the actual fishermen may receive a lower uh, price once if if the supply chain is not as cheap but maybe that's incorrect i have no idea what that would look like but i would think that you would have to pay a lower price to the fishermen because your overhead costs increased uh yeah i mean i I think that it could go both directions right um and so if there you know if most of this effort is being driven on the consumer side that you know people just you know want to purchase more domestically sourced uh food domestically sourced products um, that if it was coming from that demand side, uh, I, I think that it, you know, it would, it would be mostly a net benefit for fishermen, um, kind of up and down the supply chain, uh, and processors too. Um, now if it was, if it was an effort that was coming mostly, uh, mostly from public policy to try to do something, um, you know, then, then I think all bets are off, but, um, you know, kind of a, a, a grassroots type effort to, to think more domestically. I don't, I, I think would be a net, a net positive overall. When you, when you've been uh, doing your research at, with ICER, now you're mainly looking at commercial fisheries only, right? Or are you are you looking at multiple different uh, forms of fishing? I'm I'm thinking sport fishing, any of the other. Yeah. So so an important caveat about a lot of the research that we've been talking today to, about today is that it's almost all focused on commercial fisheries and primarily focused on uh, state fisheries. So. Obviously, I mean, we've we brought up the, maybe a few of the federal fisheries a couple of times, the, the ground fish fleet out in the Bering Sea, Aleutian Islands. I do a little bit of work on the, the federal, uh, some of the federal fisheries, but n- no, uh, not, none of my work really focuses on sport or subsistence fishing. But obviously, those are very important engines of, of economic activity, particularly locally. Um, now, so in in your paper, in the in the conclusion, if if we're trying to summarize what everything everything that we've talked about, the indications are that commercial fishing does benefit local communities, or commercial fishing really doesn't benefit local communities. If you were to say it either which way, does it benefit communities as much as we think it does, a lot less than we think it does, a lot more than we think it does, or somewhere in between? I, I think that it's a I, I think that that it about met my expectation. So I think that the effect of the fishermen bringing their money home was maybe a little bit higher than I would have thought that it would have been, especially relative to the effect of those um, landing landing fish in a community. So the, the processor side activity. Um, again, it's not that the processors don't uh, aren't generating economic activity. They're not. It's, it's not that they're not generating jobs. They are. It's just that those jobs aren't going to the locals in that community primarily uh, from changing values in the fishery. So I think that kind of overall takeaway is that, you know, fishing is a, is a positive industry for, for local communities in Alaska. Um, but one of the things that we say in the paper is that we think that it can, we think that it can provide more value if communities are thinking in savvy ways about how to leverage that resource um, for economic development. Is, so is one, of, one, of the, one of the things what's that is taxing the the primary way you're you're thinking about leveraging or are you talking about more of a of a industry leveraging to add value to it yeah so i think that you know one of the things that communities can think about is is, is communities are very focused on economic development right right they want to they want to encourage um prosperity for for the folks that live there um, and so one of the, one of the ways that they might think about doing that is co-investing with businesses um, to try to move up and down that value chain to try to maybe plug some of those leaks in the hole uh, or some, yeah, some of those, those holes in the bucket, right. Um, to try to, to try to eliminate some of that leakage. So, you know, whether or not, or maybe, maybe that looks something like co-investing in um, locally owned processors, for example. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, 
un- unfortunate examples of, uh, <laughs> of, of this that's occurred over time. Uh, a lot of business has gone wrong, but I think that, you know, communities can be opportunistic about it. Um, and, and looking for these opportunities to potentially, um, you know, uh, bring, bring some of that money home, uh, so that more, we can produce more domestically. Cause that'll, that'll, uh, really allow us to leverage these natural resources that we have in such abundance here uh, to add more value. For the, for the future. So I, I read through this paper. What are, what is right now, what's the next area that you're focused on for research? Have you moved on or is this still the thing that you're looking at primarily in your role with the university, are you primarily looking at the multiplier and communities, or are you on to the next thing that you're that you're studying next? Oh boy, Casey! Well, I wear, I wear, <laughs> I wear a bunch of different hats that I assert. So I've been doing some work on the permanent fund dividend um, and its social and economic impacts. We could have a whole other conversation oh, about that, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and so that that's a fascinating world. Um, but I'm also working on other fisheries related topics. So. Um, still, still interested in, in kind of the local economic aspects of fisheries. Um, one, one of the one of the ideas that I've been kicking around is um, g- given kind of the setup of the limited entry program. You know, there were folks that, that were able to get one of these limited entry per- pro- or permits back in the day uh, when they set up the program back in the seventies, and some folks were kind of uh, cut out of them, uh, right? Because they only issued so many permits. So, what what was the effect of getting one of these permits relative to not, and you know, how does that impact? Uh, the economic livelihood of fishermen today, uh, given what happened in the past. So that's, that's a question that I'm interested in trying to answer. Um, one of the other things that we've been working on, I mentioned that uh, I've been working on some stuff related to the ground fish fleet, the Amendment 80 fleet out in the Bering Sea Aleutian Islands, uh, trying to think about how uh, those, those fishermen respond to various policies that management is putting in place because um, they, they're, they're on a uh, quota system out there and they Fishermen can respond to weird ways to quota prices, so we're trying to figure that out. Um, but yeah, th- th- so those are a few of the things that I've been working on lately. Well, I am gonna, I'm going to ask, you know, continue to ask around out here in Bristol Bay what types of things that they would be interested in. I can pass those on to you. I know that fishermen out here, there, there's a couple of things. Fishermen always think that the that the processors are setting a, a poor price for them, and as I've as I mentioned to you, uh, out here the the prices are offered after the season's completed, which is a which is a unique thing to think about just economically on the incentives that that the fishermen have, uh, you know, as compared to them having the prices beforehand. And I think that's a really unique way to have it structured because it it frequently would be different. You know, when you look at agriculture, you you kind of can time that your uh, when you're selling, when you're changing your investment structures out here, it's not necessarily the case. That's one of the things that in the Bristol Bay fishery that people are always concerned about is how are these prices set and whether or not that <laughs> makes a difference, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think I think that that's a really interesting question. I mean, there are, there are all, I mean, you're right. The, the, that's a particularly kooky pricing system. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, some of the ways that they do um, oil and gas leasing contracts where the, the landman goes around and he, you know, he's, he's kind of working on these squirrely deals between this landowner and that owner, landowner to force pool them. And um, I mean, there's just kind of weird institutional things that arise from these industries that have been around a while. Um, but no, I, I think that I think that that. Uh, they call it the bay, bay price versus posted price. Is that right? Um, yeah, you you could you could or, call or, it that way. I mean, but what, or I, retro bonuses. Well, you have you have the retro bonuses that comes in after the fact, and then we post the price. Uh, and and I don't know exactly what goes into all of this pricing, but I I, I know that there is there is a formula that goes into the the processors that they're figuring out okay what was the catch and i think initially this is just a, just a guess working through it i would i would imagine that bristol bay used to have such a large quantity of fish relative to the remainder of of the world's supply of of sockeye and maybe it's still that because it's wild you don't know the resource can can vary so much i don't know what the deviation is from year to year but i know that you could have a run of 30 million or 
high 20 millions or you could have a run of 62 million. I mean, that's a huge variation. So you never know what, what, uh, how much resource or how much, how much the right. inputs are going to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. And uh, yeah, another, no, that, that would certainly be fascinating to look at. And another thing is people are, people are generally concerned with the number of fishermen that are coming uh, or that, that the permits are moving more and more and more out of state. I'm not so certain that we have a lot of programs in place out here to try to keep those permits in the region. And, yep. you know, and I don't see them, I don't see them particularly working well. Some, some of them, right. in some ways it is working well, but do you, does, do you have a, a theory? Have you guys seen why so many of the permits, I mean, it they are continuously migrating out of the region, out of the state. And I wonder what's causing that primarily. So that, that's a really good question. And, and one that we have taken a stab at trying to answer at least a couple of times over the last couple of years. Uh, so we don't, we don't have anything formalized here. Um, but some of the theories that I have heard proposed are um, uh, changing permit prices. So, um, for high-valued permits, uh, as, as we talked about before, the higher the value of the permit, uh, the more attractive it becomes to an outside buyer. Um, and so that, that could cause a permit to move to Anchorage or, or, or Washington State. Uh, the former ICER director, Gunnar Knapp, who's done a lot of great fisheries research for Alaska over, over his tenure, now, now emeritus professor at ICER, um, his, uh, his theory about permit migration was all about uh, travel costs uh, compared to prices. And so if fish prices were high uh, relative to your travel costs, well, that might incentivize you to live in Anchorage and then travel out to Bristol Bay. Um, whereas if prices were low and travel costs were relatively high, well, then you'd want to be relatively close to the fishery. So that was, that was kind of Gunner's theory. And I, I think that some of that makes sense. Um, you know, another thing that we see a lot, especially in Alaska, is that, um, you know, you, you can't permit stack for the same fishery, but a lot of fishermen own many different types of, of fishing permits, right? They, they want to build out a portfolio so that they can diversify and decrease their risk. Um, and so there are just some places in the state that have some geographic advantages to owning a lot of permits and being able to participate in a lot of fisheries. So it's not that, it's not that a lot of permits are moving outside the state or even to Anchorage. It's that really a lot of permits are consolidating in places like Homer and Kodiak and Sitka, where you have a lot of opportunities to participate in different kinds of fisheries and kind of diversify your fishing portfolio. And so that, that's one of the trends that I've seen in the data over the last 20 years is consolidation of permits into those, really those three communities primarily. Um, but then there are, you know, other kind of more uh, difficult to quantify reasons, you know, maybe uh, younger generations have preferences for living in more urban areas relative to um, past generations. And so, you know, maybe there wasn't any amount of money that could, could get certain people to live in uh, a rural community, a fishing community. Um, so you have, you have trends like that. But, you know, I think that um, I, I'm potentially more convinced by these stories about diversification, for example. The, uh, the kind of the, the last point or last thing that I'll, I'll mention, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Something that I've been interested in looking at is whether or not as the economy so we talked about the multiplier as the economy increases if a local community does benefit from the commercial fishery so let's say you're this is just an example you're in Dillingham and the commercial fishery becomes extremely valuable and so therefore the local community becomes uh, has a lot of money in it that it's actually its own death wish because it allows people to move away from the fishery so it creates the fishery with a limited entry permit system what it does is it allows a fisherman to work for six weeks and make a good piece of their their income but it's very hard for that fishing income to match a year-round job with benefits with paid time off etc so as that community grows as it develops if you do have economic development it almost necessarily sends the permits out of uh, out of the region because mm. more and more people choose to stay in the jobs that are year round and more stable and don't have the same amount of risk. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, 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 that sounds right. 
And I think that, you know, one of, one of the interesting things about the economy in Alaska is it's one of the most seasonal economies in, in the country. Um, there's so many more jobs available in the summer here, um, not just in commercial fishing, um, but in tourism, in uh, construction. I mean, most of the construction happens in the summer here. Um, and it, it, it's very difficult to find jobs that are primarily in the, in the other swing of the season, in the, primarily in the fall, winter, and spring. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if more jobs were structured that way or if the economy of Alaska were more structured that way, um, maybe, maybe it would uh, lend itself better to um, more local ownership of permits. You know, if they could uh, kind, of, kind of be able to participate in both the, the fishing economy and, and one of these, these off-season jobs. But there's just very few of those. Well, I have to say the, the conversation's interesting. I love commercial fishing. It's hard for anybody to understand. This was uh, Dr. Brett Watson with the Institute of Social and Economic Research, the paper, Local Economic Multipliers of Commercial Fisheries. is interesting. I enjoyed it. And hopefully, uh, with your time and your schedule and everything that's going on, you'll have a little bit of time to come and talk about other topics as they come up. I can reach out to you, and, and we can talk about them in the future. That'd be great, Casey. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Have a great day.